Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Me and John chapter 7, where we were just, that we were just a few moments ago reading through our passage. Uh, for this morning, and uh, hope you will uh, take out the notes that's found in the weekly bulletin, some notes to be able to fill in, some blanks to fill in, to keep you involved and engaged in the process, uh, and um, um, hopefully you can be able to write some notes to be able to apply these teachings, this truth to uh, your own individual life uh, in order to help you. We uh, Believe the church is of those who are the called out ones, the gathered. Uh, they're the ones who are gathered together by God, those whom he's chosen, those whom have repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in him. And so when we gather together, we're, we're desirous for others to be able to come and observe what is happening here, to, to uh, see the worship of God's people, uh, hopefully of the desire that they would one day repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in him. But we believe the gathering is designed for that for those whom God has gathered. And so as a result, we believe there's an intentionality on our part, as the scriptures told us, that we should be equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And I say that simply because as we think about our teaching, even the teaching we're going to be looking at this morning, it's helpful for us because it gives us instruction. It gives us aid. It helps us to recalibrate us, if you will, to set our minds on the things that are above and not the things that are on the earth. We're beginning to think about the song we just sang, and that soon the earth will dissolve or will melt like snow. Like we believe that the Bible teaches that the earth will be destroyed by fire. It won't be destroyed by water. It's the promise that God has made in Genesis chapters, uh, in the book of Genesis in 6 through 9. And ultimately, though, there will be a destruction of the earth through fire. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that those who are born again will then have been um, saved, will be the ones who will be um, populating this new heaven and a new earth. And so... Uh, as a result of that, then Christ will be forever ours. That's what we just sang. And if, if you think about it just for a moment, is that really how we live? That the earth will soon dissolve like snow. I, for us here in Georgia, the snow days aren't very long. They're not, they don't happen very much. Even last year, I think, or even this past uh, January, uh, snow came in for about a day and then dissolved relatively quickly. And that's the intent for us to be able to see how quickly this can pass away. But is that how we're thinking? Is that how we're viewing uh, the individuals that we interact with? And then if so, it will prepare us then that when we gather together, the things that we're learning, the things that we're being taught, that we should be intending to apply those teachings to our lives, that we want to take it and obey what the Bible teaches. And these are literally God's words for us while we're here. And if that's the case, and we're equipping the saints for the work of ministry, then our, um, all of our intentionality and all of our desire is in you. Now that, you may think, well, well, you could do a variety of other things that could, could to get more people here. But the reality is, is that what I've seen as, as being true in my life, what Pastor Tim has seen being true, and probably the things that you've seen is true in your life, there can be a myriad of times where individuals could come to, to us, to come to our gathering, could come uh, to events that we do, or even have conversations 
with you, but the reality is, is that when people really have um, questions as it relates to Christ, they, that those most of the time aren't being answered in the formal gathering. That's why we would have membership interviews and we sit down and have conversations with people where we can really ask questions, they can ask questions of us, and that where we can really get to the heart of what the Bible is teaching. Well, that's what we desire to do by our preparing you in our weekly gatherings on our Sunday mornings and, Sunday and Wednesday nights is that we're aiding you to be able to then go out to the myriad of individuals that you see to be salt and light, to be Christ's example to them, right? The very, he was incarnated, came and dwelt among us to be able to demonstrate to people who God is. And yet now he's left uh, that responsibility to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that now we're to carry that work and that mission on for him as the very body of Christ, he being the head of the church. So, Pastor, why do you say all that? Why do you, why do you prepare us to even hear that? And a couple things for us to be able to, to see is why we design the way we're designing, why we think the way we, we do things. And so if you begin to understand that, this is how we're supposed to live and that we're to be holy as he is holy, that we can then carry out this mission for him. The one thing is we don't want blatant sin in our life that would not would demonstrate to a lost world that there's no difference that Christ would make in our lives. And so that's why we're thinking about uh, a series like Killing Sin Habits to do on Wednesday night, that we would find victory over sin and we wouldn't be enslaved to sin as the Bible has taught that we're not for those who are in Christ Jesus so that then you would be able to help others who are enslaved to sin. They would see a life that's distinct and different and then begin to think there is hope and would be able to not only us to seek them, to, uh, us to seek them out, but even they might even seek us out as a result of that. But then even from beyond that, that it would be a desire that we would confront one another and that we would encourage one another and we would live in harmony and unity with one another because that would be the intent and that would be the reality for those who were in Christ. And so Sunday morning, we just had a tremendous lesson and have been ongoing study of instruments in the Redeemer's hands, of uh, taking biblical principles and how do we begin to um, uh, walk through conflict, walk through communication with one another so that we could confront sin uh, in each other's lives, or even be able to find out if it is in, in, even indeed sin in an individual's life, so that why we could carry on the mission of Christ. And all of that is exactly where we're at in this particular passage. This is exactly what we were talking about as we're walking through. That if we have our mindset on the very mission of God, and that we're trying to carry out what He has left us to do, that we should make disciples, teaching them to observe all that He did and taught, then we need to get down to the weeds, if you will. We need to get down to the areas of life where we're actually encountering one another with how I fail and how you fail and how others who uh, claim to know Christ or maybe they don't claim to know Christ and we want to warn them that ultimately we believe uh, that, that time is short and our life is short. We're not promised tomorrow. We're, but our life is but a vapor and it's just here and then it's gone. And so if we're going to do that, then all of a sudden what we do in our gatherings means so much more because the, the burden is not on just as us as leaders to, to entertain people. The burden's not on us just to try to get a crowd. The burden is on all of us to be able to carry out Christ's mission. And so then we want to prepare you to be able to do so. And then you say, well, hey, you, most of us, we're here. We signed up for that. We, we're committed to that. So, so what? What's the so what? Well, as you look at a passage like we're going to study today, I, our intent is if, if that's the, the, the why behind what we're doing, then the what why would we? Why do you want to bring all this up, Pastor, to be able to share with us? Is that when you do dis, uh, attempt and, and strive and to live in accordance with the Word of God and what's being taught faithfully from the Word of God, hopefully from us, but then anywhere else that you've you've been faithfully taught the Word of God, 
we're intending, the Bible intends us for to keep it. Here's what you need to be aware of. And this is exactly the point of our passage. You probably saw that in the notes. That there will be controversy surrounding and with Jesus. There will be controversy with Christ. Why? Because this is what we saw last week. There's a, a lot of people who can be attracted to Christ, can be attracted to who they think is the Lord Jesus Christ, and an idea of who God is, an idea about who Jesus is that isn't biblical. And if that's the case, then over time, as you're attempting to be biblical, as you're attempting to follow what the Bible actually does do, say and teach, then at some point people are going, well, that's not what I signed up for. That's not who I thought he was. And that's exactly the point of our passage this morning. Is as Jesus comes, there's a tremendous amount of controversy that surrounds who he is. And so just to be able to help us think through that, controversy is, is uh, defined in, in the dictionary as a disagreement, typically when prolonged public, and heated. It's a disagreement that's typically, uh, it's a disagreement that continues to grow as it's, it's a prolonged, public, and heated. And as you're beginning to think the ministry and life of Jesus, uh, at this particular point in the, in the passage, we're almost about six months away from uh, Jesus going to the cross. And so his ministry is um, uh, over two and a half years, maybe three years of, of, of ministry that's already transpired at this particular point. And so this has been a ministry that's been prolonged, about who he says he is and what he's here to be able to do. It's been very public. And starting off with the uh, very opening portions of his ministry, he goes in and cleanses the temple. And so it's been very, very public at a time where there was a lot of people there at, one of the, at the feasts. And so there were uh, thousands upon thousands that were, were there uh, and were just seeing that public. And it has clearly been heated. A, por- a portion of that is what we've been telling you. Now to, between John chapter 5, which we were in several weeks ago, to the end of this book is going to be the controversy continues to get more and more ramped up, get more and more heated. And so it's exactly what we have. This controversy, is a, this disagreement has been prolonged, it's public, and it's heated. And it is, it's continued to grow as we we're going to see this morning. And so as we're thinking through that, as we're walking through this particular passage about this, this controversy that surrounds Jesus, the reason I wanted to bring our attention to it is that I don't want us just getting to be too distant from the past as if well, that was 2,000 years ago and how does this apply to my life today? Well, it has everything to do with your life today because if you are the very bearer of the name of Christ, Christian, we're little Christ. That's what we're Christians mean. So we're, we're a, a demonstration of who he is, not fully, but because of the Holy Spirit that resides in us, the temple of God now resides in us, and we're carrying out his will and purposes on the earth, then ultimately they're going to hate us like they hated him, right? They're going to be attracted to him in some um, in certain ways, it probably isn't in, uh, biblical or an accurate desire for what, why a person should come to faith in Christ. Many, that will be the case. And as we're confronting those things, as we're learning those things, as we're interacting with people, then you need to be prepared so that you know how to respond. Very similar as Pastor Tim was leading us this morning about you're confronting somebody and how then immediately they, they blame shift. They want to rationalize the, the things that they're doing. And we have to be able to say, no, we have to have a... As Tim said, we have to have a backbone. We have to be able to communicate lovingly, graciously, kindly, but at the same time, very firm and with conviction. And so it's, it's the same is true for us here. So I wanted us to take a moment for us just to be able to look at John chapter 7 and see all the controversy that surrounds Jesus. I think many times when we approach the Scriptures, we look at it with uh, 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 a a distant view from it, and, it, and everything's just kind of with a rosy-colored glasses and everything. Man, this was great. And, and many will even speak of Jesus this way, is that he was just a fine teacher, and he was just a, a good moral man, and he was just a great example for us. 
and not see all the controversy that surrounds him. And so I want us to be able to see it, not that we would go out and create controversy. Don't hear me say that. We're not looking for issues. We're not looking for problems. But I'm just communicating, just as it was with Jesus, Jesus is God. He was God, is God, will forever be God. And when he uh, took on human flesh, added human flesh to his divinity, to his, his deity, and he came uh, to the earth, he, the expectation was that people would, should come to him, right? And, they, and he is God, he didn't cease being God. And he was, uh, uh, the creation was created to worship him. And so when he calls for that, when he uh, confronts sin, and he's not being unkind, he's not being unloving when he does those things. And so he was very gracious, he was very kind, he was loving, loving in his approach, and yet they hated him. So much so, they put him on a cross and they crucified him, right? Now we understand there was a sovereign plan behind that, and it was for our, our graciousness and, and for our good that Christ did that. But I want us to be able to see this, because when even if you come with the best desire, right? You're thinking the best of people, you're loving people, you're, you're, you're um, graciously, kindly confronting people in sin, you're, you're warning people of future judgment, that if really, once again, if, uh, if everything is, is moving toward a, a fact that Christ will return, and ultimately there will be a final judgment, don't we want to warn people? And if that were us, wouldn't we want somebody to warn us and the imagery and the picture there is that there was a person or a family sleeping in a burning house. Wouldn't you want to bang on the door and warn them that ultimately they might perish in that fire? And the same picture, the same imagery is for us today is that if that's the case, shouldn't we warn people? But here's the reality. When we do lovingly, graciously, compassionately warn people, confront people because of love and not because we think we're holier than they are, we're or we're more godly than they are, but simply out of loving compassion for them, as we would want them to do for us, it's going to make people angry. Right? And the imagery I don't want you having in your mind is like Westboro Baptist churches with the, the picket signs on the road and how and they're communicating how God hates people and so they hate people. And so and none of that. With, with a loving compassion, where you're sitting across from a coworker, you're sitting across from a loved one, you're sitting across from a, a family member, you're sitting across from individuals, and they are lost in sin. They, are, they will go to hell when they die because it's exactly what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches. And we warn them. I just want you to be prepared. That all throughout Christ's ministry, and this ramps up, and you, we won't see hardly anything but that until... Um, we get to John 13 and the Passover feast and the institution of the Lord's Supper, and then Jesus is going to go to the cross after, shortly thereafter. Uh, we're about to move uh, quickly in, this, in our study through John through Passion Week. And so it's, it's quickly approaching, and in the next several chapters we'll be there. Uh, but as we are navigating that, you're going to see that it, it continues to get more and more controversial as it's, as it's related to Jesus, right? And so I just wanted to point this out, just even this passage. I'm not going to have to go to other sections prior to this or even after this. In this chapter alone, you're going to begin to see there's enough controversy that surrounds Jesus that as a result, why would that be listed? Why was that for us? It's for our instructions, for our preparation, so that like in, Acts, in the book of Acts, when the disciples with Jesus, after Jesus had died on the cross, had resurrected, had ascended back to heaven on high, uh, they began to be persecuted. And what was their reaction? The reaction was far different than I think the reaction that you and I would have with the type of persecution they received, being flogged, being beaten. They rejoiced. Now, you've got to think, are they just, are they crazy? Is there something wrong with them? No, they had been prepared. 
their master, their teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, had been preparing them to say, listen, they're going to hate, they hate me, the world hates me, it's going to hate you, not because I've done anything that was hateful or unkind, but because people love darkness. They love sin more than they love light. They don't want their darkness being, darkness being exposed. They don't want their sin being exposed. And so they're going to attack me, and they're going to attack you. And so when that happened to the apostles, they rejoiced. And the part of the intent, I want to expose you to this this morning, that we're being faithful with the text, we're being faithful uh, to try to be a church that's in the community, loving on the community, sharing the gospel with the community, encouraging the community. The reality in that is, is that you have a conversation with individuals and you press enough because you love them to get past this the superficiality of how's your life and how's your wife and how's your kids and how's your, your, your job and how's, how's this and get to the real, uh, uh, the real issues of their heart and they begin to expose that, they're not always going to like what you and I say, what the Bible teaches, and we should be saying what the Bible teaches. And so I want to prepare you so that as gracious as you can, as you examine your heart and you're walking through, trying to love on people and share with people faithfully, biblically, and, and compassionately, that if in those times the person responds negative to you, negatively, and if you examine your heart and there's no sin on your part, then for you to rejoice. Not that it went bad, not that it went sour, not that it went south, but the Bible said this is going to happen to Jesus. The Bible communicated this is going to happen to his disciples or his apostles in the first century, and it was going to happen to us. And that's the intent behind why I want you to see the controversy surrounding Jesus this morning. So let's dive into our notes. I'm going to walk through these. The first section is going to be relatively quick, and then we're going to kind of see the where the, or the who that uh, the separation happened. And then we're going to begin to see in the second portion the why, right? So there's two major points within uh, our, our, our series this morning I want us to be able to look at. So let's think of this. Jesus was a source of division during his earthly ministry. Jesus was a, was a source of division during his earthly ministry. Not just a source, he was the source of division, right? So when Jesus says, he, he says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. His teaching that was simply to say... That ultimately, when a person places their faith and trust in him, their affections, their allegiance, their uh, desire, is, their loyalty is for him, then ultimately at that particular point, then if that's their utmost allegiance is to him, then ultimately it's going gonna, it's gonna to begin to uh, uh, splinter out from there and it's going to begin to uh, 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 begin to move from that epicenter all throughout the, area, the other areas of life, which is going to impact their relationship with their spouse, relationship with their children, relationship with their extended family, relationship with their employer, the relationship with the government, relationship in all aspects with their neighbors. And so when you begin to think about that, uh, then here's the key, that when that's the division he's talking about, the sword that separates, that those who aren't with him are going to be scattering, scatter, scatters, and those who are, who are against him are scattered, and those who are with him will gather, is what Jesus says. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not... If you're for me, you'll gather. If you're against me, you'll scatter. And so what happens is, is you begin to share about Christ, and it's going to either, uh, it's, you're going to be gathering people to him, or those people are going to be repelled from you, right? And so we need to be prepared for that. We need to be uh, aware of that. And so he was the very source of this during his earthly ministry. Did he come to save the lost and to seek and to save that which was lost? Absolutely. Did he die on the cross to make payment for sin and sinners? Absolutely he did. All that we repent of sin repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in him, would be saved. We believe all of that. But the reality is, as Luke chapter 6 says, when the disciples were walking with Jesus, here's the question they asked him. Are few being saved? Are few being saved? And his answer was the affirmative. Yes, few are being saved. That's why when you look at passages like Matthew chapter 7, narrow is the path 
that leads to everlasting life. But broad is the road that leads to destruction, right? And so why do you need a broad road? Because there's many who will travel down it. But then narrow is the path. This pictures uh, a biking trail or a, or a, a hiking trail, right? To where, like on the Appalachian Trail, and a, where it's just little narrow paths, not this broad expressway type view. Narrow path, single file, walking through um, the, the, this journey and traversing these paths and trails. This is, the, this is what Christ has called us to. And this is pilgrim, there's pilgrims and strangers and aliens that are just passing through. This is our intent. So I want you to be able to see it this morning. So Jesus brought source division during his earthly ministry. Jesus brought separation within, number one, Galilee. Jesus brought separation, number one, within Galilee in John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Now, where was he? Well, he was in that particular region. He was in that particular section in Galilee. And if you remember what just transpired last week, in the last two weeks, we studied John chapter 6. What do we know about John chapter 6? Ultimately, they didn't like the multitudes that had been fed by him when he fed the 5,000. That was just 5,000 men, not to mention women and children, as Pastor Tim taught us the last couple of weeks. As we think about that, what do we see as the major th- the issue there? It brought separation, did it not? He began to teach, you must, you must identify with me. You must find your purpose and your fulfillment in me. You must abide in me and I in you. So he uses the illustration of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And he didn't mean cannibalism there, but what he was communicating is that I'm the vine and uh, you're the branches. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll bear much fruit. And so he's saying you need to find your very source of identity, as John 15 would say, uh, that identity was in, in him and not in, in being an Israelite, being Jewish and, and heritage and land and uh, the prom- the, uh, simply the promises that was given toward the people of Israel, but they needed to appropriate those individually. And so as a result of that, they didn't want to do that. Right, And so they rejected him. And so this is the, the picture here. And so in rejecting him, it says many of his disciples, those who were false disciples, fell away and followed him no longer. And so he turns to uh, the 12 and says, are you also going to depart? And that's where Peter gives the, the, the communication, you alone. Um, uh, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right? So where, where else should we go? You're the Holy One. Of God, And so this is the intent here. And so in Galilee, you saw separation. The multitudes left him. Only the twelve remained. And then you begin to see here, not only was there separation that was brought within Galilee, but Judea. And so it says in verse, continuing verse 1, he would not go about in Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so the Jews were seeking to kill him. Why were the Jews, and the Jews were speaking of the religious leaders at that particular time, why were the religious leaders trying to kill him? Well, it's because just not too long before that, there were... Uh, there was a feast of the Jews that were happening there, another feast that brought him to Jerusalem. And so when he traveled from the northern area of Galilee down to Jerusalem where, uh, in Judea, where Jerusalem, the, the uh, uh, capital city was, where Mount Zion was, where the temple was located, there was a major feast that brought him there, and he healed a man on the Sabbath. And we talked about how he healed that man intentionally, and in doing so, uh, he begins to communicate that he, was, he uh, is God, and then he communicated that he was working as the father's working, as the father was working, he's been working until now. And so as a result of that, in, in, in uh, John 5, 18, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, and he wasn't technically breaking the Sabbath uh, as far as the, the law of God, but he was breaking their rabbinical traditions uh, that they had made, these man-made traditions that were added. And then, but not only was he breaking their man-made traditions, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so since that time, he, didn't, he wasn't in Judea. He left there, went, um, uh, as he traveled 
uh, north. He was ministering there in the northern region and remained there in the northern, northern region. But you're seeing everywhere he goes, there's controversy, right? In the southern kingdom, uh, in the southern aspects of, of Jerusalem, and he was su- serving there and he was ministering there. They want to kill him because they didn't believe he was God. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. And so um, the word was out that they were trying to kill him, as we'll see in this particular passage. And then he travels north. And as he's traveling north there, people flock to him because of the miracles that he's performing and the signs that he's performing and the healing of disease and of all uh, of demons and a variety of other uh, miracles that transpired. And as a result of that, people were being attracted to him because of the signs that he can, he can perform, but not attracted to him because he was the Messiah, not because he was the one who's going to die on the cross for their sins, not because he was God in the flesh, not because he was living a perfect life, was going to be a substitutionary death for them. They came to him because of what he could do for them in the temporal, not the eternal. And when he begins to turn it toward the eternal, the people begin to leave. And so we see in Galilee, the people are, are flee from him and they reject him. We see in Judea, the people are rejecting him and they want to kill him. And then as you continue on in the passage, you see it's not just in Galilee and in Judea, but it's his own family. His own family uh, rejects him. As you walk through the, the passage, it says in verse 3, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret, and if he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourselves to the world. You see that if, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, so they don't quite or buy into his, his claims to be a, the Messiah. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now, Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was 30 years old. He was 30. And so these brothers and uh, at least 30 years, he was, uh, he was first the firstborn, born of a virgin. So ultimately, his brothers will be after that. But in Jesus' entire life, now imagine, imagine this for a moment. Don't, don't check out on me and just think, okay, here's a man who is your brother, who was, was a child, potentially when you were a child, grew up when you, but listen, never had a bad thought, a bad motive, a bad response, always was helpful, right? If you're going to think about this, like, you, you would have to hate that brother because it's like, the, the parents would say or could say or may have said, uh, as, as many times we would say uh, sometimes, why can't you be like your brother, right? Well, there's a real problem there. He's God and I'm not. And so that was part of the issue there, right? So as Joseph's brothers in, in Genesis, Genesis 17, hated him because of favoritism there. Well, ultimately, uh, it's hard not to show favoritism to God because he, we should be. Yeah, he should be the one receiving the glory and the honor and the praise from us. And so as Mary and Joseph were ministering there in their house and leading their household, uh, I'm sure the brothers resented him. So they didn't like him. And so now his ministry is growing and these miracles that he's doing. And it's not uncommon for his family to know and to be able to see these miracles that he's performing. Clearly his mom was a part and potentially others were a part of the wedding of Cana, the very first sign he performed in John chapter 2. They could have seen that and should have seen that. And all the other miracles that were taking place as they went to the feast, these are the reality here. But yet, even with his own family, he brings a sword. His own family did not buy in. His own family were rejected him as the Messiah. It's not just the Galilee, Judea, and his own family. It's the entire world. The entire world. Look at verse 7. The world cannot hate you. So Jesus is communicating to them about his timing, and we'll explain more about that in just a moment. But ultimately says, the world cannot hate you. So Jesus is telling the, his brothers, the world doesn't hate you. Why does it not hate his, his brothers? Because they're of the world. They're not on mission with him. They're not following him. And says, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. 
It's exactly what I told you. We expose those deeds that are done in darkness. We expose individual sins. And we have to expose sin if individuals are going to turn from those sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus for salvation and for sanctification, right? Salvation is that we would, eternity begins, right, in our hearts, that the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in in our lives. And then ultimately, when our fleshly bodies die, our spirits pass on as a result of that to live with Christ, forever and then eventually our resurrected bodies will be given to us and we'll dwell in the new heaven and the new earth right so we'll have physical bodies again on the physical earth but it will be without sin and so we're thinking through these things these just, the world hates him so much so that he's going to go to the cross and die for us and so you begin to think about how broad this is everywhere he's going there's rejection he goes in galilee there's rejection he goes in judea there's rejection so much so they want to kill him in judea his family rejects him the world as a whole hates him. And it isn't in there. The crowd gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. It's going to, be, it's going to hate him. We're going to have questions about him. There's going to be controversy, controversy surrounding him. Look at verses 12 and 13. So he does eventually travel up to go to Jerusalem. And there was much muttering about him. It just means, uh, let me give you a, a present day word. And they didn't have technology then like we have today. But that he would be trending. Okay, so he's trending. You begin to look at something that's trending. It means there's a lot of discussion about that. There's a lot of dis- uh, interaction about one particular topic. And so at this particular point, the Feast of Booths has arrived. And the Feast of Booths is one of the three feasts that all Jewish males had to attend, were mandated, were required, were commanded to attend. Those feasts were the Feast of Pentecost, Passover, and Booths, or Tabernacles. And so three mandatory feasts that we were supposed to come to. And so... Um, a lot of people are going to be there, and yet the, probably the number one thing trending at that time, what the word muttering is, is communicating, is that the number one thing trending at that time was Jesus. Is that dude going to show up? Is that guy going to show up, the one that can do all the signs and do all the wonders and, and that we've heard so much about? Is he showing up? It's 12 and 13 of John 7. There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. There's controversy surrounding Jesus. Some say he's great, he's a good man, right? I still would be shy of who he is, not just a good man. He's God. He's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited prophet. He's the Christ. He's the Savior of the world. And yet others say, no, he's leading the people astray. He's a deceiver. Now think about that for a moment. He's a deceiver. If you're leading the people astray, you're deceiving people. And you're deceiving people. Listen, that's the very work of Satan. An accuser, a slanderer, a deceiver. It's what Satan's name means, the devil, means. They're attributing the very works of Satan to him. And eventually they will do those very things. They're gonna, uh, you'll see even in this passage and in other passages as well. And yet 13 says, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. They knew that, at least those locally in Jerusalem knew that, they were, that, that, that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him. And that's why they weren't willing to talk about him openly. There's a lot of, just a lot of, uh, uh, trending underneath the table, right? So it's just, they're keeping it on the DL, keeping it on the download. They want everyone to be able to know, but there's much people wanting to know, is Jesus of Nazareth going to show up and what is he going to do? And so the crowds together there, you see it in verses 20 and 21. You still see the crowd and, and uh, gather at the Feast of Booths. There's much discussion's happening here. Uh, Jesus begins to teach, and then he's in his teaching, he's, he just communicates openly what is clearly there secretly, that ultimately they wanted to kill him. And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Remember I told you that now it's, you're going to continue to see this theme again and again. They're going to claim that he has a demon in John chapter 8, verse 42. And they're going to say he's also not just that, but he's a Samaritan, which would be a slanderous way of talking about him. He says, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? 
And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel, you all marvel at it. What one work was he talking about? He'd done many signs. What one work was he talking about? He's hearkening back to John chapter 5, the passage I just read to you a few moments ago when he claims to be God. He's, he's equal with the Father and he's claiming to be God and he broke their rabbinical laws as it relates to the Sabbath. And so it's just, you're seeing, once again, controversy. It's that you're not able just to find neutral ground, right? Well, I think he's a, he's a good man. And I, I think we should just leave it at that. Well, no, you're not going to be able to just find neutral ground. You're going to have to be able to say, do you believe this is who he is or do you reject that that's who he is? Because if you just try to say, I don't know, you fall into the category of those who reject him. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not for me, you're, gonna, you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. These are the very words of Christ. And so this is why, it's, with all the prophets, why do, you, why do you tarry between two opinions? If God be for us, then let's serve God. And if not, then, then ultimately then you need to be able to make a decision. You can't just long, uh, tarry between these two opinions. This is exactly what Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah the prophet said as he's communicating there on Mount Carmel. You're going to follow the Baals, false worship, or are you going to follow the one true living God? And this is constantly what you see, what you see at the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so as Pastor Tim and I, as, as attempts to be faithful pastors to prepare you, this is what we're calling you to do. You individually, you as, as a mother or a father over a household, you as a father who leads your entire household, to be able to say, how are you leading your homes? Are you allowing your, your children, are you allowing your wife to tarry between two opinions? Or are you pressing on these subjects because you love them and you care for them? And yes, here's the reality. Individuals can come to me or come to Pastor Tim and say, I just want a better marriage. I want better children. I want, I want to have this or that. And the reality is, you've got to do it God's way. And the truth of the matter is it may not always get better. You come to us, want us to fix your marriage, it may not get better. We're going to give you what the Bible says is the answers, with Christ being the solution to all of life's problems. The eternal solution. And yet people may walk away from that. May hate that. And if you begin to follow Christ faithfully, they may begin to hate and reject you as well. And so that's why we want to prepare you. And so the, the crowds here couldn't figure out what's happening. Some say he's good. Some say he's bad. Now they say he is a demon. But yet at the same time, they're marveling at the things that he's doing. You continue to see it in verses 25 through 27. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is, is, not, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So they just got some of the crowd just got out of their mouth saying, you have a demon. Who, who's seeking to kill you? But then the crowd, the people of Jerusalem, know that's what verse 25 says. Some of the people of Jerusalem, so those who live within the city, they ever said, this is not the man whom they seek to kill. So some are just making fun of him, rejecting him. But you've got to remember, how does this all play together? This is a major feast, so people are coming from all over the land. Some could be coming from Galilee. Some can be coming from, from a variety of different locations for this major feast. And so not everyone lived in Jerusalem. And so as they're, they're all making their way here, not everyone knew the plot to kill Jesus. And so that's probably what people were, were, was taking place in verses 20 and 21. But those who lived in Jerusalem, those who knew what had taken place and had transpired before, and the, the plot had been continued to increase and the, the intensity toward Christ, the controversy surrounding Christ continued to um, intensify. As a result of that, they're the ones saying, hey, is he not the man that they're seeking to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So they're confused. But we know where this man comes from. We know where he comes from. His accent gives him away. He's from Galilee. Now, the Bible doesn't say that 
That's the region where Christ is going to be from. From Nazareth, we know who his parents are. A caravan in, massive caravan, right? How do we know that? Remember all the way back in when Jesus was 12 years old and was left at the temple? There was a day's journey as they were caravaning back before they realized Jesus wasn't there. What does that communicate to you? The parents were just, didn't pay attention. They don't care about their son. They don't love him at all. No, it, it, what transpires is there's a massive caravan of family members and friends and, and, and relatives and neighbors. And they would caravan together. And so sometimes the kids would play together and they would be amongst the caravan as they're all walking together. And if by the time they located him later on that day, they realized, or attempted to locate him later on that day, as things begin to settle in, they're like, where's Jesus? And they go back, and where do they find Jesus? Doing his father's work at the temple, right? He's talking to the religious leaders at that particular time, making them marvel at what he knew at even at age 12. And so as you begin to think about this, this process, they're trying to figure out who he is. Is he good or is he not good? And they're, they're trying to process this, and in verses uh, 25 through 27. So can it be that they really know this is the Christ? Verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So there's an assumption there. They've come in some, some tradition that's been handed down that, hey, this is going to be mysterious. The Christ is going to show up on the scene and no one's going to know anything about him. That's not true. They, they knew that wasn't exactly the truth because later on they're going to be, you're going to hear the authorities say, based upon Micah chapter 5, he's supposed to be from Bethlehem. Right? But then we're not... But we know this guy. We know his family. We know he has brothers, his sisters. We know his mom is. We know his dad is. Now, if they'd really taken the time, they would begin to figure out he's fulfilling prophecy all along the way. They should know who he is. But they're just making assumptions about him, and so they're, they can't quite figure him out. Well, the authorities don't seem to be... I thought they wanted to kill him, but now he's here. They could just be able to arrest him. Why won't they just stop him and arrest him? He's making a scene, right? He's challenging their authority, so why don't they just arrest the guy? And so you see this division that's being caught. See, again, in verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? No one's, no one's challenging that he's able to do various signs of miracles. Happens everywhere he goes. He's performing miracles. Will, will the Messiah, when he comes, will he do more miracles than this guy? And so there's controversy surrounding who he is. And then 40 through 44 you see, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. This is the long-awaited Messiah, the prophet that was spoken of Moses, that Moses spoke of. Others said, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a vision among the people over him, and some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Pastor, what's the whole point of this? Is that in Galilee, in Judea, his own family, the world, even at Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, there was controversy surrounding Jesus, and there will be controversy surrounding Jesus in your lifetime as well. If we truly identify who he is based on the pages of Scripture, and you acknowledge him for who the Bible says he is, Men and women and boys and girls and neighbors and co-workers and family members and friends are going to reject him and you because you do not reject him. And then the last source of division that was brought, not just in Galilee or Judea, his family, the world, the crowd at Jerusalem, but the religious leaders and their system. This is interesting. I want you to see these last two and then we're going to see the why. why. Why did they reject him? Why did he bring separations? But as far as to who, listen to this, the religious leaders and their system. First ones in that, that system... You see division was the officers. There was officers. 
And they did not obey the orders from the Pharisees. And so uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees would gather together and they'd make up a, 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 an appointed court, the Sanhedrin. And in that, they would basically be the ruling officials of Jerusalem. And they would have even a, um, a police force. They would have officers that could arrest people at this particular time. And in verse 32, you see the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering. So here it is the second time. Uh, they were muttering in verse uh, 12, you see the first time there was much muttering about him. There's much trending about Jesus. And in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd uh, muttering about Jesus. It's continued to trend. And as they heard these things about him, uh, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So they're sending him. They have the authority. They can just arrest him and then take him out of there. So when the officers show up to arrest him, they begin to hear his teaching. And that's what transpires after verse 32. He begins to teach and begin to share. And so... They don't arrest him at that particular time. And then eventually the next day he stands up and he begins to cry out in verse 7. Uh, the day of the feast, he stands up in the middle of their, their ceremony that they're having, their celebration that they're having, and he stands up. Just imagine there's a large crowd, and he just stands up in the middle of the large crowd because remember they're looking to arrest him, and so he must have, have kept himself hidden at that particular time. And he stands up in the middle of the crowd and he begins to cry out about being living water. Um, and if anybody thirsts, come to him. And so from that uh, you see that they still did not arrest him. And then in verse 44, you see that some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one lays hands on him. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees that are returning back. And the chief priests and the Pharisees said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. I said, he doesn't teach like you teach. You guys quote each other, the rabbis and the traditions that come. And he speaks as if he's God. You've heard it said of old, but I say to you, he's not quoting your traditions. He's not quoting other men. He's not quoting rabbis and, and previous teachers to substantiate his message. He's saying, I give you commands. No one's ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them. Have you also been deceived? Remember that? He's leading the people astray is the word. He's a demon. He has a demon. So he's in, within the kingdom of darkness. He's a follower of the devil. He may even be the devil. Have you also now been deceived by his deception? Have any authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Look at us. Here's your leaders. Look to us. Have any of us bought into him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Why aren't you just paying attention to the mob? Who cares what the mob thinks? Who cares what they think? We're the ones who know truth. You should trust us. What does that tell you? There was division even amongst the religious leaders in their system. Jesus is coming and he's bringing a sword everywhere he goes. Even amongst the Pharisees themselves. It says the second one here, the Nicodemus defends the rights of Jesus according to their Jewish laws. They just got out of their mouth. Have any of the authorities in verse 48, have any authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? And then he criticized the crowd. Don't just buy into this crowd. It's a curse. Follow them. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who was one of the Pharisees. We saw him back in John chapter 3, did we not? Who had gone to him before and who was one of them, was one of the Pharisees, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So you see, Nicodemus is, has already heard him, has already spent some time with him, just one-on-one, having an interaction with him, learning from him. We don't know if he's a believer at this particular time. None of the scriptures tell us that that would be the case. But clearly he's defending Christ, as far as the rights that he should have, and, and defending him according to their own rules, according to their own law. And man, they don't like this at all. Look at verse 52. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Are you, are you a follower of this Jesus of Nazareth? 
Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, that's not, even that's not exactly true. Jonah was from the region of Galilee. Nahum was from the region of Galilee. There were other prophets, at least three of the prophets were from that region. So there's maybe a little bit of hyperbole there due to their anger. They say, no prophet arises from Galilee. Oh, no, there had been previous prophets from Galilee. But the reality is, is that it just shows you don't want to listen to Jesus. And so I share all that to say that Jesus is a source of division. And men and women, if Jesus has come to be Lord of your life, he is Lord. But if you've now repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in him, you've confessed, you've agreed that he is Lord. And he will bring division through your life as well. And we need to be aware of that. We need to walk into situations knowing that people will hate you because of Christ. And you're going to have to make decisions. You're going to have to honor the Lord in those decisions. Because if not, you're going to be no different than the false followers of John chapter 6 who departed from him because they only were attracted to Jesus for what he could do for them and not because of who he is. And it's who he is that brings the distinction. That leads us to our second point. So this is where Jesus brought separation but now let's look at why Jesus brings separation. Jesus brought separation because, first of all, his heavenly agenda. His heavenly agenda. And I'm going to be walking through the entire text, and we're going to be walking through this pretty quickly. There's three major points to be able to see. The first portion in verses 1 through 13 helps us see this heavenly agenda and what's tra- that's transpired. I'm just going to walk it through there for you relatively quickly. And so in verse 1, we see that he was about in, in Galilee. Just to give you some context to see how quickly, uh, what, how, how this is transpiring. In John chapter 6, the portion that G, uh, Tim was teaching us, in verse 4, it says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So the Passover, which was a feast of the Jews, one of, remember I told you the one of the three primary feasts that, uh, that Jewish males had to attend every year. And so there's three feasts, and they would attend them every year. Well, the Passover feast happened in the spring. And so this would have been in the spring. And now we begin to see in, in this particular passage, so he, would not, he was going about in Jerusalem. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. That's the time stamp. It helps us to be able to see. So probably this is about seven months after John chapter 6. John chapter 6 happened, and then seven months, you begin to see that um, this has transpired. This is helpful for us to be able to know because they're placing time stamps on this. This is why then, eventually when the Passover arrives again, this will be the Passover where Jesus is going to go to the cross. That's another six months, a full year from John chapter 6 is going to transpire where we end up finding ourselves in John chapter 13. Just trying to give you a big picture. I wanted to point something out to you just to help you to be able to see. You think, well, man, I know the Gospels are kind of written chronologically and it helps us to be able to see things, but then John's uh, Gospel is not... And it, it's difficult to be able to find out what's going on. And you think, man, I just wish there was a way to kind of read it all together to be able to see in one full story all four Gospels together because there's details that's, that's in each of the Gospels that may not be in other Gospels. And the reality is you don't have to do all the work. It's been done for you. So I just want to point out two resources for you just to help you because it, it, it can help you to begin to see this not just as a story but as real life. Two books, A Harmony of the Gospels, does that very thing. It's going to walk you through and it begins to put the passages together. And so you begin to see how they all tie together. And there'll be sections in this. Let me find a page here. 
where like there's two uh, Matthew's account and Luke's account, and then they even have four wide where you begin to see how there's multiple versions here. So you see Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account, and it ties all the passages together just to help you see how this transpires and helps you be able to see it to put more details to it. So there's one that's kind of more of a technical way. And then John MacArthur, so that was by uh, Harmony of the Gospels, Robert L. Thomas, and uh, Stanley in uh, Gundy, Gundry. This would be a great book. And this one was actually uh, used from that book, but it's more of like in a story form that John MacArthur put together that help you to be able to do the very same thing. And so I know for us in our, in our own home life, when we start school coming up, uh, we didn't start this past week, but when we, we start school coming up, uh, we're, our kids are homeschooled, we're going to read through this as part of our, our material as well, just be able to see the whole story together. So I would commend this to you, maybe be some, some family devotional time that you could be able to use. Oh, that book was, I didn't tell you the title. One Perfect Life by John MacArthur. One Perfect Life by John MacArthur. And it used uh, uh, this book as a resource to end up developing in this book. So just to have you an idea. But I want to put, put these things out to you. So Passover feast, six or seven months has transpired. Now we're in uh, October. And this feast typically happens. Uh, the feast of the Passover typically falls through uh, the Day of Atonement. And so uh, nine days later after the Day of Atonement, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths happens. It's primarily to commemorate uh, the time where they were being uh, protected and provided for and preserved in the wilderness. And so as a result of that, that God was prepare, preparing them, protecting them, providing for them, uh, preserving them until they were able to um, acquire the land that had been promised to them. And that's, you don't see that happen until the book of Joshua. But then this is the intent behind the feast. The feast was designed in Luke chapter, or not Luke, Leviticus chapter 23. There's teaching on this particular feast. And so I just want you to be able to see there had been about seven months. And so Jesus had transpired, stayed in Galilee for seven months because he couldn't go in Jerusalem. They didn't want to go in Jerusalem because they were trying to kill him, right? And so then the feast arrives. His brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. And so here's the key. You're going to begin to see now their human perspective. The rejection that has happened from his brothers was because he had a heavenly agenda. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.